Chapter Four of *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Tiger of Mysore* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Four. First Impressions. The next morning, Dick was up early, eager to investigate the palace, of which he had seen little the night before. The house was large and handsome, the Rajah having added to it gradually every year. On passing the doors the great hall was at once entered. Its roof of elaborately carved stones was supported by two rows of pillars with sculpted capitals. The floor was made of inlaid marble, and at one end was raised a foot above the general level. Here stood a stone chair, on which the Rajah sat when he adjudicated upon disputes among his people, heard petitions, and gave audiences while a massive door on the left-hand side gave entrance to the private apartments. These were all small in comparison with the entrance hall. The walls were lined with marble slabs, richly carved, and were dimly lighted by windows generally high up in the walls, which were of great thickness. The marble floors were covered with thick rugs, and each room had its divan with soft cushions and rich shawls and covers. The room in which they had supped the night before was the only exception. This had been specially furnished and decorated in English fashion. The windows here were low and afforded a view over the garden. Next to it were several apartments, all fitted with divans, but with low windows and a bright outlook. They could be darkened during the heat of the day by shutters. With the exception of these windows, the others throughout the house contained no glass. The light entering through innumerable holes that formed a filigree work in the thin slabs of stone that filled the orifices. The grounds round the palace were thickly planted with trees, which constituted a grove rather than a garden, according to Dick's English notions. This was indeed the great object of the planter, and numerous fountains added to the effect of the overhanging foliage. Dick wandered about, delighted. Early as it was, men with water-skins were at work among the clumps of flowers and shrubs that covered the grounds, wherever there was a break among the trees. Here and there were small pavilions, whose roofs of sculpted stone, were supported by shafts of marble. The foliage of shrubs and trees alike was new to Dick, and the whole scene delighted him. Half an hour later his two cousins joined him. "'We wondered what had become of you,' Doast said, "'and should not have found you if Raj Bulob had not told us that he saw you come out here. Come in now. Coffee is ready. We always have coffee the first thing, except in very hot weather, when we have fruit sherbet.' After that we ride or shoot till the sun gets hot, and then come in to the morning meal at ten. On going in, Dick found that his mother and the Rani were both up, and they all sat down to what Dick considered a breakfast, consisting of coffee and a variety of fruit and bread. One or two dishes of meat were also handed round, but were taken away untouched. "'Now come out to the stables, Dick,' the Rajah said. "'Anwar, the officer who commanded the escort, will meet us there. He will be your instructor.' The stables were large, the horses were fastened to rings along each side, and were not, as in England, separated from each other by stalls. A small stone trough with running water was fixed against each wall at a convenient height, and beneath this was a pile of fodder before each horse. "'This is the one that I have chosen for you,' the Rajah said, stopping before a pretty creature that possessed a considerable proportion of Arab blood, as was shown by its small head. It's very gentle and well-trained, and is very fast. When you've got perfectly at ease upon it, you shall have something more difficult to sit, 
until you are able to ride any horse in the stable barebacked. Murad is to be your own property as long as you are out here. Assais led the horse out. It was bridled but unsaddled, and Anwar gave a few instructions to Dick, and then said, I will help you up, but in a short time you will learn to vault onto his back without any assistance. See, you gather your reins so in your left hand, place your right hand on its shoulder, and then spring up. I can do that now, Dick laughed, and placed his hand on the horse's shoulder. He lightly vaulted into his seat. Well done, Dick, the Rajah said, while the two boys, who had been looking on with amused faces, clapped their hands. Now, Sahib, Anwar went on, you must let your legs hang easily. Press with your knees, and let your body sway slightly with the movement of the horse. Balance yourself rather than try to hold on. I understand, Dick said. It's just as you do on board ship when she's rolling a bit. Let go the reins. For half an hour the horse proceeded at a walk along the road that wound in and out through the park-like grounds. I begin to feel quite at home, Dick said at the end of that time. I should like to go a bit faster now. It's no odds if I do tumble off. Shake your rein a little. The horse will understand it, Anwar said. Dick did so, and Murad at once started at a gentle canter. Easy as it was, Dick thought several times that he would be off. However, he gripped as tightly as he could with his knees, and as he became accustomed to the motion, and learned to give to it, acquired ease and confidence. He was not, however, sorry when, at the end of another half-hour, Anwar held up his hand as he approached him, and the horse stopped at the slightest touch of the rein. As Dick slid off, his legs felt as if they did not belong to him, and his back ached so that he could scarcely straighten it. The Rajah and his sons had returned to the palace, and the boys were there waiting for him. "'You have done very well, cousin,' Doast said with grave approval. "'You will not be long before you can ride as well as we can. Now you had better go up at once and have a bath and put on fresh clothes.' Dick felt that the advice was good, as, bathed in perspiration and stiff and sore in every limb, he slowly made his way to his room. For the next month he spent the greater part of his time on horseback. For the first week he rode only in the grounds of the palace. Then he ventured beyond, accompanied by Anwar on horseback, when his two cousins joined the party, and, by the end of the month, he was perfectly at home on Murad's back. So far he had not begun to practice shooting. It would be of no use, the Rajah said when he one day spoke of it. You want your nerves in good order for that, and it requires an old horseman to have his hand steady enough for shooting straight after a hard ride. Your rides are not severe for a horseman, but they are trying for you. Leave the shooting alone, lad. There is no hurry for that. By this time the Rajah had become convinced that it was useless to try and dissuade either his sister or Dick from attempting the enterprise for which they had come over. Possibly the earnest conviction of the former, that her husband was still alive, influenced him to some extent, and the strength and activity of Dick showed him that he was able to play the part of a man. The Rajah said little but watched the boy closely, made him go through trials of strength with some of his troopers, and saw him practice with blunted swords with others. Dick did well in both trials, and the Rajah then requested Anwar, who is celebrated for his skill with the tulwar, to give him daily half an hour's sword-play after his riding lesson. He himself undertook to teach him to use the rifle and pistol. Dick threw himself into his work with great ardour, and in a very short time could sit any horse in the stable, and came to use a rifle and pistol with an amount of accuracy that surprised his young cousins. 
"'The boy is getting on wonderfully well,' the Rajah said one day to his sister. "'His exercises have given him so much nerve, and so steady a hand, that he already shoots very fairly. I should expect him to grow up into a fine young man, Margaret, were it not that I have the gravest fears as to this mad enterprise, which I cannot help telling you, both for your good and his, is, in my opinion, absolutely hopeless.' "'I know, Mortise,' she said, "'that you think it is folly on my part to cling to hope, and while I do not disguise from myself that there would seem but little chance that my husband has survived, and that I can give no reason for my faith in his still being alive, and my confidence that he will be restored to me some day, I have so firm a conviction that nothing will shake it. Why should I have such a confidence if it were not well founded? In my dreams I always see him alive, and I believe firmly that I dream of him so often because he is thinking of me. When he was at sea several times I felt disturbed and anxious, though without any reason for doing so, and each time on his return I found, when we compared dates, that his ship was battling with a tempest at the time. I was so troubled with him. I remembered that the first time this happened he laughed at me, but when, upon two other occasions, it turned out so, he said, "'There are things we do not understand, Margaret. You know that. In Scotland there are many who believe in second sight, as it's called, and that there are families there, and they say in Ireland also, where a sort of warning is given of the death of a member of the family. We sailors are a superstitious people, and believe in things that landsmen laugh at. It does not seem to me impossible that when two people love each other dearly as we do, one may feel when the other is in danger, or may be conscious of his death. It may be said that such things seldom happen, but that is no proof that they never do so. For some people may be more sensitive to such feelings or impressions than others, and you may be one of them. There is one thing, Margaret, the fact that you have somehow felt when I was in trouble should cheer you, when I am away, for if mere danger should so affect you, surely you will know should death befall me, and as long as you do not feel that, you may be sure that I shall return safe and sound to you. Now I believe that firmly. I was once troubled, so troubled that for two or three days I was ill, and so convinced was I that something had happened to Jack, and yet that he was not dead, that when nigh two years afterwards Ben came home, and I learned that it was on the day of the wreck of his ship that I had so suffered, I was not in the least surprised. Since then I have more than once had the same feelings, and have always been sure that at the time Jack was in special danger. But I have never once felt that he was dead, never once thought so, and am as certain that he is still alive as if I saw him sitting in the chair opposite to me, for I firmly believe that, did he die, I should see his spirit, or that, at any rate, I should know for certain that he had gone. So whatever you say, though reason may be altogether on your side, it will not shake my confidence one bit. I know that Jack is alive, and I believe firmly, although of this I am not absolutely sure, that he will some day be restored to me. "'You did not tell me this before, Margaret,' the Rajah said and what you say goes for much with me. Here in India there are many who, as is said, possess this power that you call second sight. Certainly some of the fakirs do. I have heard many tales of warnings they have given, and these have always come true. I will not try in future to damp your confidence, and will hope with you that your husband may yet be restored to you. One evening Dick remarked, You said down at Madras, uncle, that you would some day tell me about the invasion by Hyder Ali. Will you tell me about it now? The Rajah nodded. His sons took their seats at his feet, and Dick curled himself up on the divan by his side. You must know, the Rajah began, 
that the war was really the result of the intrigues of Sir Thomas Rumbolt, the governor of Madras, and his council. In the first place they had seriously angered the Nizam. The latter had taken a French force into his service, which the English had compelled Bosalt Young to dismiss, and Madras sent an officer to his court with instructions to remonstrate with him for so doing. At the same time they gave him notice that they should no longer pay to him the tribute they had agreed upon for the territory called the Northern Sirkaz. This would have led to war, but the Bengal government promptly interfered, cancelled altogether the demands made by the Madras government, and for the time patched up the quarrel. The Nizam professed to be satisfied, but he saw that trouble might arise when the English were more prepared to enforce their demands. He therefore entered into negotiations with Hyder Ali and the Maharatis for an alliance whose object was the entire expulsion of the British from India. The Maharatis from Pune were to operate against Bombay, those in central India and the north were to make incursions into Bengal, the Nizam was to invade the northern Sirkars, and Hyder was to direct his force against Madras. Hyder at once began to collect military stores and obtained large quantities from the French at Mahi a town they still retain on the Malabar coast. The Madras government prepared to attack Mahi when Hyder informed them that the settlements of the Dutch, French, and English on the Malabar coast, being situated within his territory, were equally entitled to his protection, and that if Mahi were attacked he should retaliate by an incursion into the province of Arcot. In spite of this threat Mahi was captured. Hyder for a time remained quiet, but the Madras government gave him fresh cause for offence by sending a force in August of 1779 to the assistance of Busult Young at Adani. To get there this detachment had to pursue a route which led for two hundred miles through the most difficult passes and through the territories both of the Nizam and of Hyder. The council altogether ignored the expressed determination of both of these princes to oppose the march and did not even observe the civility of informing them that they were going to send troops through the territory. I did not say, Dick, that this made any real difference in the end. The alliance between the three native powers being made, it was certain that war would break out shortly. Still, had it not been for their folly in giving Hyder and the Nizam a reasonable excuse for entering upon hostilities, it might have been deferred until the Madras government was better prepared to meet the storm. The Bengal government, fortunately, again stepped in and undid at least a part of the evil. It took the entire management of affairs out of the hands of Rumbold's council, and its action was confirmed by the board of directors, who censured all the proceedings, dismissed Sir Thomas Rumbold and his two chief associates from the council, and suspended other members. The prompt and conciliatory measures taken by the Bengal government appeased the resentment felt by the Nizam, and induced him to withdraw from the Confederacy. Hyder, however, was bent upon war, and the imbecile government here took no steps whatever to meet the storm. The commissariat was entirely neglected, they had no transport train whatever, and the most important posts were left without a garrison. It was toward the end of June that we received the news that Hyder had left his capital at the head of an army of ninety thousand men, of whom twenty-eight thousand were cavalry, he attempted no disguise as to his object, and moved confident in his power to conquer the Carnatic and drive the English into the sea. My father had already made his preparations, everything was in readiness, and as soon as the news reached him he started for Madras, under the guard of his escort, with my mother and myself, 
most of the traders of the town and the landowners who had gathered here in fear and trembling. It was a painful scene, as you may imagine, and I shall never forget the terrified crowds in the streets and the wailing of the women. Many families who then left reached Madras in safety, but of those who remained in the town all are dead or prisoners beyond the hills. Hyder descended through the pass of Changama on the 20th of July, and his horsemen spread out like a cloud over the country, burning, devastating, and slaughtering. Hyder moved with the main army slowly, occupying town after town and placing garrisons in them. You must not suppose that he devastated the whole country. He was too wise for that. He anticipated reigning over it as its sovereign, and had no wish to injure its prosperity. It was only after tracts where he considered that devastation would hamper the movements of an English army that everything was laid waste. On the 21st of August he invested Arcot, and a week later, hearing that the British army had moved out from Madras, he broke up the siege and advanced to meet them. Sir Hector Munro, the British general, was no doubt brave, but he committed a terrible blunder. Instead of marching to combine his force with that of Colonel Bailey, who was coming down from Guntur, he marched in the opposite direction to Conjavaram, sending word to Colonel Bailey to follow him. Bailey's force amounted to over 2,800 men, Munro's to 5,200. Had they united, the force would have exceeded 8,000, and could have given battle to Hyder's immense army with fair hope of success. The English have won before now with greater odds against them. My father had marched out with his cavalry, 150 strong, with Monroe, of course. I was with him, and it was to him that the English general gave the dispatch to carry to Colonel Bailey. We rode hard, for at any moment Hyder's cavalry might swoop down and bar the road, but we got through safely, and the next morning, the 24th, Bailey started. The encampment was within twenty-five miles of Madras, and with one long forced march we could have effected a junction with Monroe. The heat was tremendous, and Bailey halted that night on the bank of the river Cortelour. The bed was dry, and my father urged him to cross before halting. The colonel replied that the men were too exhausted to move farther, and that, as he would the next day be able to join Monroe, it muttered not on which side of the river he encamped. That night the river rose, and for ten days we were unable to cross. On the 4th of September we got over, but by that time Tippoo, with 5,000 picked infantry, 6,000 horse, six heavy guns, and a large body of irregulars, detached by Hyder to watch us, barred the way. Colonel Bailey, finding that there was no possibility of reaching Conjavaram without fighting, took up a position at a village, and on the 6th was attacked by Tippoo. The action lasted three hours, and although the enemy were four times more numerous than we were, the English beat off the attacks. We were not engaged, for against Tippoo's large cavalry force our few horsemen could do nothing, and were therefore forced to remain in the rear of the British line. But though Colonel Bailey had beaten off the attacks made on him, he felt that he was not strong enough to fight his way to Conjavaram, which was but fourteen miles distant, and he therefore wrote to Sir Hector Monroe to come to his assistance. For three days Sir Hector did nothing, but on the evening of the eighth he sent off a force composed of the flank companies of the regiments with him. These managed to make their way past the forces both of Hyder and Tippoo, and reached us without having to fire a shot. Their arrival brought our force up to over 3,700 men. Had Monroe made a feigned attack upon Hyder and so prevented him from moving to reinforce Tippoo, we could have got through without much difficulty, but he did nothing, and Hyder, seeing the utter incapacity of the man opposed to him, moved off with his whole army and guns to join his son. Our force set out as soon as it was dark on the evening of the ninth, 
but the moment we started we were harassed by the enemy's irregulars. The march was continued for five or six miles, our position becoming more and more serious, and at last Colonel Bailey took the fatal resolution of halting till morning, instead of taking advantage of the darkness to press forward. At daybreak fifty guns opened on us. Our ten field pieces returned to fire until our ammunition was exhausted. No orders were issued by the colonel, who had completely lost his head, so that our men were mowed down by the hundreds, until at last the enemy poured down and slaughtered them relentlessly. We did not see the end of the conflict. When the colonel gave the orders to halt, my father said to me, "'This foolish officer will sacrifice all our lives. Does he think that three thousand men can withstand one hundred thousand, with a great number of guns? We will go while we can. We can do no good here.' We mounted our horses and rode off. In the darkness we came suddenly upon a body of Tippoo's horsemen, but dashed straight at them and cut our way through, but with the loss of half our force, it did not draw rain until we reached Madras. The roar of battle had been heard at Conjavaram, and the fury and indignation in the camp at the desertion of Colonel Bailey's detachment was so great that the general at last gave orders to march to their assistance. When his force arrived within two miles of the scene of conflict, the secession of fire showed that it was too late, and that Bailey's force was well-nigh annihilated. Monroe retired to Conjavaram, and at three o'clock the next morning retreated, with the loss of all his heavy guns and stores, to Madras. The campaign only lasted twenty-one days, and was marked by almost incredible stupidity and incapacity on the part of the two English commanders. We remained at Madras. My father determined that he would take no more share in the fighting until some English general, possessing the courage and ability that had always before distinguished them, took the command. In the meantime, Hyder surrounded and captured Arcot after six weeks' delay, and then laid siege to Ambur, Chingleput, and Wandewash. In November, Sir Eyre Coote arrived from England and took the command. Confidence was at once restored, for he was a fine old soldier, and had been engaged in every struggle in India from the time of Clive. But with the whole country in the hands of Hyder, it was impossible to obtain draft animals or carts, and it was not until the middle of January that he was able to move. On the 19th he reached Chingleput, and on the 20th sent off a thousand men to obtain possession of the fort at Karanguli. It was a strong place, and the works had been added to by Hyder, who had placed there a garrison of seven hundred men. The detachment would not have been sent against it had not news been obtained on the way that the garrison had fallen back to Chingleput. Our troop of cavalry went with the detachment, as my father knew the country well, to the surprise of Captain Davis, who was in command, we found the garrison on the walls. "'What do you think, Rajah?' Captain Davis, who was riding by his side, asked. "'My orders were that I was to take possession of the place, but it was supposed to be that I should find it empty.' "'I should say that you had better try, with or without orders,' my father replied. "'The annihilation of Bailey's force and the miserable retreat of Monroe have made a terribly bad impression throughout the country, and a success is sorely needed to raise the spirits of our friends.' "'We will do it,' Captain Davis said, and called up a few English engineers, and a company of white troops he had with him, and ordered them to blow in the gate. My father volunteered to follow close behind them, with his dismounted cavalry, and when the word was given, forward we went. Oh, it was hot work, I can tell you. The enemy's guns swept the road, and their musketry kept up an incessant roar. Many fell, but we kept on until close to the gate, and then the white troops opened fire upon Hyder's men on the wall, so as to cover the sappers who were fixing the powder-bags. They soon ran back to us. There was a great explosion, and the gates fell. 
With loud shouts we rushed forward into the fort, and close behind us came the sepoys led by Captain Davis. It took some sharp fighting before we overcame the resistance of the garrison, but fought desperately, knowing well enough that after the massacre of Bailey's force little quarter would be given them. The British loss was considerable, and twenty of my father's little company were among the killed. Great stores of provisions were found here, and proved most useful to the army. The news of the capture of Karanguli so alarmed the besiegers of Wandiwash that they at once raised the siege and retreated, and on the following day Sir Eyre Coote and his force arrived there. It was a curious thing that on the same day of the same month Sir Eyre Coote had twenty-one years before raised the siege of Wandiwash by a victory over the army that was covering the operation. Wandiwash had been nobly defended by a young lieutenant named Flint, who had made his way in through the enemy's lines a few hours before the treacherous native officer in command had arranged with Hyder to surrender it, and taking command had repulsed every attack, and had even made a sortie. There was now a long pause. Having no commissariat train, Sir Eyre Coote was forced to make for the seashore, and though hotly followed by Hyder, reached Cutterlower. A French fleet off the coast, however, prevented provisions being sent to him, and even after the French had retired the Madras government were so dilatory in forwarding supplies that the army was reduced to the verge of starvation. It was not until the middle of June that a movement was possible, owing to the want of carriage. The country inland had been swept bare by Hyder, and on leaving Cuddalore, Sir Eyre Coote was obliged to follow the sea-coast. When he arrived at Porto Novo, the army was delighted to find a British fleet there, and scarcely less pleased to hear that Lord McCartney had arrived as governor of Madras. Hyder's army had taken up a strong position between the camp and Cuddalore, and Sir Eyre Coote determined to give him battle. Four days' rice was landed from the fleet, and with this scanty supply in their knapsacks, the troops marched out to attack Hyder. We formed part of the baggage guard, and had therefore an excellent opportunity of seeing the fight. The march was by the sea, the infantry moved in order of battle in two lines. After going for some distance we could see the enemy's position plainly. It was a very strong one. On its right was high ground, on which were numerous batteries, which would take us in flank as we advanced, and their line extended from these heights to the sand-hills by the shore. They had thrown up several batteries, and might, for aught we know, have many guns hidden on the high ground on either flank. An hour was spent in reconnoitering the enemy's position, during which they kept up an incessant cannonade, to which the English field-guns attempted to reply. To me and the officers of this troop, it seemed impossible that any force could advance to the attack of Hyder's position without being literally swept away by the cross-fire that would be opened upon it. But when I expressed my fears, my father said, No, you will see no repetition of that terrible affair with Bailey's column. The English have now got a commander who knows his business, and when that is the case, there is never any fear as to what the result will be. I grant that the lookout seems desperate. Hyder has all the advantage of a very strong position, a very powerful artillery, and has six or seven to one in point of numbers. But for all that I firmly believe that before night you will see us in possession of those hills, and Hyder's army in full flight. Presently we saw a movement. The two lines of infantry formed into columns, and instead of advancing toward Hyder's position, turned down toward the sea, and marched along between it and the sand-hills. We were at the same time set in motion, and kept along between the infantry and the sea, so as to be under their protection if Hyder's cavalry should sweep down. All his preparations had been made under the supposition that we should advance by the main road to Cuddalore, 
and this movement entirely disconcerted his plans. The sand-hills completely protected our advancing columns, and when they had reached a point almost in line with Hyder's centre, the artillery dashed up to the crest of the hills, and the first column passed through a break in them and moved forward against the enemy, the guns above clearing a way for them. A short halt was made until the artillery of the second line came up, and also took their position on the hill. Then the first column, with its guns, moved forward again. Hyder had, in the meantime, moved back his line and batteries into a position at right angles to that they had before occupied, and facing the passage through the sand-hills by which the English were advancing. As soon as the column issued from the valley, a tremendous fire was poured upon it, but it again formed into line of battle, and covered by the fire of the artillery, moved forward. It was a grand sight. My father and I had left the baggage which remained by the sea, and had ridden up onto a sand-hill from which we had a view of the whole of the battleground. It was astonishing to see the line of English infantry advancing under that tremendous fire against the rising ground occupied by the dense masses of the enemy. Presently there was a movement opposite, and a vast body of cavalry moved down the slope. As they came, the red English line suddenly broke up, and, as if by magic, a number of small squares, surrounded by glistening bayonets, appeared where it had stood. Down rode Hyder's cavalry. Every gun on our side was turned upon them, but though we could see the confusion in the ranks caused by the shot that swept them, they kept on. It seemed that the little red patches must be altogether overwhelmed by the advancing wave, but as it came closer flashes of fire spurted out from the faces of the squares. We could see the horses recoil when close to the bayonets, and then the steam poured through the intervals between the squares. As they did so, crackling volleys broke out, while from the batteries on the sand-hills an incessant fire was kept up upon them. Then following the volleys came the incessant rattle of musketry. The confusion among the cavalry grew greater and greater. Regiments were mixed up together, and their very numbers impeded their action. Many gallant fellows, detaching themselves from the mass, rode bravely at the squares and died on the bayonets. Others huddled together, confused and helpless against the storm of bullets and shot, and at last, as if with a sudden impulse, they rode off in all directions, and sweeping round regained their position in the rear of their infantry, while loud cheers broke from our side. The squares began again to fall into line, which, advancing steadily, drove Hyder's infantry before it. As this was going on, a strong force of infantry and cavalry, with guns, was moved round by Hyder to fall on the British rear. These, however, were met by the second line, which had hitherto remained in reserve, and after fierce fighting were driven back among the sand-hills. But as they were retreating, the main body of Hyder's cavalry moved round to support the attack. Fortunately, a British schooner which had sailed from Porto Novo when the troops started had anchored near the shore to give what protection she could to the baggage, and now opened fire with her guns upon the cavalry, as they rode along between the sand-hills and the sea, and with such effect that they halted and wavered, and when two of the batteries on the sand-hills also opened fire upon them, they fell back in haste. This was Hyder's last effort. The British line continued to advance until it had gained all the positions occupied by the enemy, and these were soon in headlong flight. Hyder himself, who had been almost forced by his attendants to leave the ground, being with them. It was a wonderful victory. The English numbered but 8,476 men, of whom 306 were killed or wounded. Hyder's force was about 65,000, and his loss was not less than 10,000. 
The victory had an immense effect in restoring the confidence of the English troops, which had been greatly shaken by the misfortunes caused by the incapacity of Monroe and Bailey. But it had no other consequences for want of carriage, and a deficiency of provisions and equipment, prevented Sir Eyre Coote from taking the offensive, and he was obliged to confine himself to capturing a few forts near the coast. On the 27th of August the armies met again, Hyder having chosen the scene of his victory over Bailey's force to give battle, believing the position to be a fortunate one for himself. Hyder had now been joined by Tippoo, who had been present at the last battle, and his force numbered eighty thousand men while the English were eleven thousand strong. I did not see the battle, as we were at the time occupied in escorting a convoy of provisions from Madras. The fight was much better contested than the previous battle had been. Hyder was well acquainted with the ground, and made skilful use of his opportunities, by fortifying all the points at which he could be attacked. The fight lasted eight hours. At last Sir Eyre Coote's first division turned the enemy's left flank by the capture of the village of Pillalore, while his second turned their right, and Hyder was obliged to fall back. But this was done in good order, and the enemy claimed that it was a drawn battle. This, however, was not the case, as the English at night encamped on the position occupied by Hyder in the morning. Still the scandalous mismanagement at Madras continued to cripple us, but learning from the commandant at Valor that, unless we were relieved, he would be driven to surrender for want of provisions, Sir Eyre Coote marched to his help. He met the enemy on the way. Hyder was taken by surprise and was moving off when the English arrived. In order to give his infantry time to march away, he hurled the whole of his cavalry against the English. Again and again they charged down with the greatest bravery, and although the batteries swept their ranks with grape, and the squares received them with deadly volleys, they persevered until Tippoo had carried off his infantry and guns, and then, having lost five thousand men, followed him. The English then moved on toward Velour. Hyder avoided another encounter, and Velour was relieved. Sir Eyre Coote handed over to its commandant almost the whole of the provisions carried by the army, and having thus supplied the garrison with sufficient food for six weeks, marched back to Madras, his troops suffering greatly from famine on the way. Nothing took place during the winter except that Sir Eyre Coote again advanced and revictualled Valour. In March a French fleet arrived off the coast, landed a force of three thousand men to assist Hyder, and informed him that a much larger division was on its way. Fortunately, this did not arrive, many of the ships being captured by the English on their way out. In the course of the year there were several fights, but none of any consequence, and things remained in the same state until the end of the year, when on the 7th of December Hyder died, and Tippoo was proclaimed his successor. Bussy arrived with fresh reinforcements from France in April, and took the command of Hyder's French contingent, and in June there was a battle between him and a force commanded by General Stuart the successor to Sir Eyre Coote, who had been obliged to resign from ill-health, and who had died in the spring. The French position was a very strong one, and was protected by numerous field-works. The battle was the most sanguinary fought during the war, considering the numbers engaged. The English carried a portion of the works and captured fourteen guns, and as the French retired during the night were able to claim a victory. Their loss, however, was over a thousand, while that of the French was not more than a third of that number. During that year there was little fighting down here. A Bombay force, however, under the command of General Matthews, captured Bednor, but Tippoo hastened against him with a great force, besieged Bednor, and forced it to surrender, after a desperate defense. 
Tipur violated the terms of capitulation and made the defenders prisoners. Bangalore was next besieged by him, but resisted for nearly nine months, and only surrendered in January of 1784. Tipu had by this time lost the services of his French auxiliaries, as England and France had made peace at home. Negotiations between Tipu and the English went on till March, when a treaty was signed. By its provisions Tipu should have handed back all his prisoners. He murdered large numbers of them, but one thousand British soldiers and sixteen hundred sepoys obtained their liberty. No one knows how many were retained of the number calculated at two hundred thousand of natives carried off from the counties overrun by Hyder's troops. Only two thousand were released. More British would doubtless have been freed had it not been for the scandalous cowardice of the three men sent up as British commissioners to Tipu. They were treated with the greatest insult and contempt by him, and, in fear of their lives, were too glad to accept the prisoners he chose to hand over, without troubling themselves in the slightest about the rest, whom they basely deserted and left to their fate. End of chapter 4. First Impressions. Recording by Mike Harris.